Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1929, the 33rd season of the VFL. 1929 was a pivotal year in the 20th century. Forever known for the Black Thursday stock market crash on Wall Street on the 24th of October. Within three years, the Dow Jones Index lost 90% of its high set in September of 1929. The crash set off the global economic depression that would hit Australia hard, especially in the early 1930s. It was unlucky timing for the new Prime Minister James Scullin and the Labour Party, who won an election and took office a week before the crash. The crash happened after the footy season had ended, so we'll see more of its impact in coming episodes. But economic disruptions do not come completely as a surprise. Players and supporters had been experiencing changing economic times as the 1920s came to a close. The 1928 budget had new taxes and budget cuts to address a growing deficit. The then government, led by Prime Minister Stanley Bruce, blamed high production costs, so they tried to abolish the arbitration courts. In a time of heavily unionised workforces, this led to significant unrests and strikes, with unemployment already a concern. Times were getting tougher, but people did not realise how bad things were going to be in the 1930s. A small example of growing unemployment touching on football was the decision by Footscray City Council in March regarding employment of casual labour for manning the gates at VFL and VFA games. The council gave preference to local, unemployed, married men. And the Herald reported that many clubs were having trouble finding jobs for their players. Local councils were usually the first option. It was seen as a win-win, because a good football team lifted the pride of a city. It was even claimed that Richmond grew its population when the Tigers won back-to-back premierships in 1920 and 21. In some country newspapers, jobs were advertised thus. Wanted, a hairdresser. Must be a good footballer. In other 1929 news, there was a cricketer from New South Wales who made his first test century at the MCG in January. He might have a future, that young Don Bradman. In December, the game of bingo was invented by an American toy salesman, Edwin Lowe. Many football clubs across the country have relied on bingo games as a key fundraising activity, using a format similar to that developed by Mr Lowe in 1929. Also new in 1929 were inexpensive, mass-produced sunglasses. First brought to market by Sam Foster in the United States, and now a mass-market item, with some fashion brands not quite so inexpensive. But of course, don't wear them in a grand final parade. In America, the Bird's Eye Company launched a range of frozen foods, including meat, fish and fruit, with an extensive advertising campaign to convince consumers to eat the new type of food. And so, a new, convenient option for meals was established, and now... We can defrost something to eat while we watch footy on the TV. Another milestone event in September 29 was a horse winning their first race after five attempts. It may not sound significant, but the horse was a big red, known as Farlap, and he would go on to be a hero in the early years of the Depression. In March, the VFL delegates met, and there was much to discuss with most of the action taking place behind closed doors, away from the prying press. First up was a push for an executive committee to pay closer attention to the management of the league and address any waste of money. Some interesting parallels here with the eventual move to an independent commission in the 1980s, but that is still decades away. At issue was how many delegates should be on the executive A full delegates meeting meant two representatives from each club chaired by the independent president of the VFL. Obviously, this many people could be a bit unwieldy in terms of day-to-day management. 
The first proposal was five delegates to manage affairs, with another suggestion being seven delegates, and a third option was each club being represented with an executive group of 12 delegates. But none of the options achieved the 75% majority required for any change, and the motion was lost. The need for an executive was agreed by all, but the details were blocking progress. If you've ever worked on a committee, you'll know the feeling. A previous meeting had blocked increasing price of membership tickets. They were supposed to go up by a sixpence. Well, the price rise was now back on. The additional money to help fund a full-time secretary and the VFL's own premises, rather than renting rooms from the Victorian Cricket Association. Also addressing financials was the push to reduce the number of free tickets that were being given out. The number of people who thought they were worthy of free admittance had gotten out of control, and action was required. The final item for this significant meeting was the ongoing challenge of the relationship between the VFL and the Melbourne Cricket Club regarding the use of the MCG for finals. The league believed the finals were a significant attraction and the MCC should pay the league for the right to host the finals. A working group was established to negotiate with the MCC, but you can be sure there will be an ongoing, difficult relationship between these two organisations, eventually resulting in the league setting up its own ground. In April, it was announced that the MCC would pay the league £300 a year for a period of time when the agreement would be reviewed. However, the Victorian Cricket Association was paid about £1,000 per year for Test matches and Sheffield Shield games that attracted large crowds. It was noted that cricket provided 22 days in a season, while finals and interstate games only added up to about six days per year. So at this point, cricket was seen as the bigger revenue driver for the MCC, but football would eventually take the lead. There was an interesting postscript to the issue of rights in June, when the Argus reported that the VFL was discussing radio broadcast rights. In 1929, it was cricket clubs at the grounds hosting a game that received payment for radio broadcasts and the league was of the opinion that they should be receiving a share. Broadcasting rights will absolutely be an ongoing issue for the league. There was also a change of the direction of the administration of the VFL in March. The delegates decided that the position of secretary for the league, which was more like a general manager, should be full-time. Edwin Wilson had been the VFL secretary since the league was established in 1897, managing affairs for more than 30 years as it grew into the most powerful football league in the country. But he was also president of the Federal Institute of Accountants, a precursor to the Certified Practicing Accountants, or the CPA organisation. And he was also an auditor for the Melbourne City Council and several other councils. He did not want the full-time position, now required by the league. His successor was Likely McBrien, a former South Melbourne secretary who would be the VFL's secretary from 1929 to 1956. Edwin Wilson's devotion to his duty was such that he worked until 3am on the last day in the office to make sure everything was in order for the transition to the new secretary. And then he was so unwell that his doctor's banned him from attending the league delegates' meeting the next evening to have his official, formal farewell. It was only the second time in 32 years that Edwin Wilson had missed a league meeting. We don't hear much of people like Mr Wilson in discussions about the history of football, but without effective administration, football clubs and leagues tend to fall apart. So we should appreciate his efforts for over 30 years at the VFL. Edwin Wilson would live on till 90, and at the time of his death, he was the oldest practicing member of the Federal Institute of Accountants. For reasons I don't understand, Edwin Wilson is not yet in the Australian Football Hall of Fame Administrators section.
The other major development in league management was the decision in May to purchase a building on the corner of Spring Street and Flinders Lane to be the league's headquarters for £21,500 to be funded in part by a sixpence tax on each membership ticket, revenue from the football record and a levy of £500 to be paid by each club over 10 years. In May 1929, as the purchase was finalised, it was already common knowledge that the building would be called Harrison House, in honour of Henry Harrison. In September 1929, this decision was formalised after the death of Henry Colden Antel Harrison. He was 92 years old and had been pivotal in the establishment of the game of Australian football. At the time, he was publicly acknowledged as the father of football and given much more prominence than Tom Wills. That may be due both to his longevity and the fact that he was a respectable establishment figure. Tom Wills had ended his own life after a long struggle with alcohol amongst other issues. As discussed in previous episodes, Henry Harrison had helped define the rules of the game in 1866, helped establish the VFA, and then was pivotal in the establishment of the VFL and much more. He had seen the game that was played in the paddocks on the edge of a young city of Melbourne become a sport that attracted 2 million spectators in a single season and more than 60,000 people at finals. I will do a separate supplementary episode to mark his life so we don't get too distracted from the 1929 season. The football previews were confident of a bigger, more popular season than anything that had gone before, and large crowds attending practice matches was a strong indication of a keenly anticipated season. As before every season, recruiting was in full swing, and clubs had travelled all over the state, in motor cars, to recruit country champions. The football record even forecast that aeroplanes would soon be used to reach players and sign them up before a competing club could arrive. It would happen. While on aviation matters, there was a prediction in July 1929 that within 50 years, travellers would fly in safety and comfort from England to Australia in under 24 hours. At this time, the fastest flight between the two countries had taken 15 and a half days. It was a pretty good prediction, because in 1974, just five years ahead of the forecast, Qantas had jumbo jets flying from Heathrow to Perth in about 20 hours. Back to the football. There was a smaller number of coaching appointments in 1929 than the previous season. Jimmy Freak took over at Fitzroy. He had won premierships with the club in 1913 and 22, and was an amazing forward, holding the club goal-kicking record when he retired as a player. Down at Geelong, Arthur Coghlan took over as captain coach from Tom Fitzmaurice, who had gone to Mortlake. Dan Minogue became the non-playing coach at Carlton, the team he had defeated in the 1921 Grand Final as captain coach of Richmond. But now he would be looking to lead the Blues to success. Albert Chadwick had led Melbourne to a premiership in 1926, but now he would have a much bigger challenge as captain coach of the cellar dwellers Hawthorne. Jim Caldwell returned to South Melbourne as their non-playing coach. In 1918, he'd captained the club to their last premiership, and now he was looking to achieve the same result as coach. Footscray appointed Alec Eason as their new coach. He had been one of the casualties of the Bulldogs' move from the VFA to the VFL, because he had earlier moved from Geelong to Footscray without a clearance. Despite the league welcoming Footscray as a club, Eason could not play, being suspended from the VFL for transferring to the VFA without a clearance. But now his playing days were over and he would take charge as coach. And if you want to see what a VFL training session looked like in 1929, there is a wonderful, short, silent promotional film made that year looking at St Kilda, South Melbourne, Footscray and Melbourne. You get to see some of the players, their grounds and their training drills. 
And from the close-ups, you'll notice that training jumpers were a bit less sophisticated than those worn by the modern player. And the number of missing teeth is clear evidence that mouth guards were still a long way off. I'll put a link on the grandfinalhistory.au website for this episode, or you can go to YouTube and search for Australian Rules Football Personalities of the 1920s, posted by the National Film and Sound Archive. The opening round was on Saturday, April 27, a cold, wet and windy day that seemed designed to remind everyone that football is a winter sport. Collingwood hosted Richmond and unfurled their premiership flag in front of the new Jack Ryder grandstand, named for the Collingwood and Australian cricketer. Built by unemployed men and partly funded by a government unemployment relief fund, it provided 3,000 seats for the Collingwood supporters. And they had a wonderful time in their new seats, as well as those in the outer. Now some clubs are said to suffer from a premiership hangover, where they underperform in the new season. Perhaps the glory of the previous year undermining the desire to work as hard or harder again. There was no evidence of a premiership hangover, as Collingwood kicked 13 goals straight in the first three quarters to remind Richmond of the challenge ahead. 13 goals straight set a record that stood until 1979, when Geelong kicked 15 goals straight against St Kilda at Moorabbin. The Tigers performed well under such an onslaught, eventually going down by just 17 points, but the accuracy and the method of the Magpies was a sight to behold. Around the grounds, Carlton rewarded their new coach with an easy win over Essendon. Fitzroy had brought in a new committee, a new coach and many new players but they finished a goal behind the Bulldogs. A result that could be seen either as failure or as a step on the way to improvement. The weeks ahead would tell where the Maroons were at. When North Melbourne joined the league in 1925, they played their first game at Geelong and won, in a shock for everybody. But they hadn't beaten the Cats since, and after the opening round, they still had only one win in Geelong. Hawthorne took a three-goal lead in their first quarter of the season at the Junction Oval against the Saints. But, despite raising May Bloom's supporters' hopes, it was St Kilda with the win at the end of four quarters, and Melbourne were too good for South. The season was underway. Membership tickets were selling out despite the increase of a sixpence, and if your team won, then all was well. And for those with a loss, there was hope for next week. Collingwood were not hiding their ambitions. In the review of the game, Sid Coventry said, That's our first step towards our hat-trick in premierships. No taking it week by week for the Magpies. They had a target in mind, and they were letting everybody know. After six rounds, or the first third of the season, the Collingwood machine was staking its claim to the top of the ladder again. Six wins from six games and a percentage of 184, showing how comfortable those wins were. Carlton followed with five wins, Melbourne third with four wins and a draw, with Richmond fourth and Essendon fifth on four wins. Footscray, St Kilda and Geelong were in touch with the top four, but Hawthorne and North Melbourne were both in sadly familiar territory, without a win at the bottom of the ladder. North Melbourne decided changes were required and Charlie Tyson resigned as coach. The club must have been frustrated when their captain coach had injured himself playing in the Wednesday league for the fire brigade. Although many VFL players played in the midweek competition, but perhaps not captain coaches. It was reported that he would stay on as a player, but that was only for one game and by late June, he was given a clearance to play at Yarraville. The former Collingwood Grand Final captain and the victim of unfair rumours after the 1926 Grand Final loss to Melbourne had played his last VFL game. At the end of June, Fitzroy, with just one win, were also making coaching changes. Jim Freak, who curiously had been appointed at the start of the season as supervisor of training, was out 
and Doug Ringrose was appointed as playing coach. Because the players would not allow injured captain Charles Chapman to resign the captaincy, their champion full forward, Jack Moriarty, resigned as vice-captain, giving Ringrose the position and seniority on the ground, along with his coaching role. After all the off-field changes, with new committees and new players, the Maroons would continue to struggle this season, only winning two games, a long way off their glory years in the league's early days. Also losing their coach in June was South Melbourne, after six rounds, with a win over Richmond and also St Kilda. But the committee was not happy with the training methods, and Jim Caldwell was asked to resign. In the modern era, coaches tend to go quietly, with speaking points such as a jointly agreed that this was the best decision, or similar words that smooth over the very difficult situation of sacking a coach mid-season. But in 1929, Caldwell wrote to the Herald with a vigorous defence of his record and the results in the short time he had at his old club, while also wishing the team well for the future. Sadly, in mid-August, Jim Caldwell died after being ill for several weeks with internal troubles. On a more positive note, June saw Hawthorne have a win, defeating South Melbourne the week after Caldwell was sacked. Not great for South Melbourne, but cause for celebration for the Maybloom's. It was their first win since August 1927. The following week, Collingwood's run through the season almost hit a small hurdle at St Kilda. On a cold, windy afternoon, the Saints kept pace with Collingwood, the first team to push them in the season so far. But Gordon Coventry kicked a goal to retake the lead just before the end of the game. At the start of July, the Victorian team travelled to Perth for a festival of football to celebrate Western Australia's centenary. There would be two games against Western Australia, one on the Saturday and the second on the Wednesday. Also, a game against South Australia in Adelaide on the return journey. It would be a two-week trek for the 23 players and officials. It was meant to be 24 players, two from each team. But Leo Dwyer from North Melbourne was a late scratching and no replacement player could be found the day before departure. During this podcast series, I've noted several aviation milestones as part of the background to help describe the changing world inhabited by players, officials and supporters. But it's no surprise that in 1929, travel to Perth was still on trains. What might surprise you is the time required to cross the country. The group left at 5pm on the Monday evening arrived in Adelaide the following morning in time for a quick change of trains, which would then arrive in Taroi at 8.15pm for another change of trains, then on to Port Augusta for yet another change of trains, and by 2.30pm on Thursday, the team was scheduled to arrive in Kalgoorlie with time for some practice on the Kalgoorlie footy ground before a 5.30pm departure on yet another train. But... The train across the Nullarbor was running late, so no lunch or training in Kalgoorlie, just switching trains and a nod and a wave to the town that had dropped everything to host the Victorians for just a few hours. They arrived in Perth at 10am on Friday morning. In summary, leaving Melbourne Monday afternoon and getting into Perth Friday morning with four changes of train. In a country the size of Australia, the modern national competition can only happen with air travel on jets. And if you're wondering what the players did with all that time on the train, The Age reported that singing in solo and chorus was a popular pastime, as well as storytelling and playing cards. With the comfort of first-class sleepers, it was only some who chose to stay up all night. Unlike previous VFL trips taken in cramped, second-class carriage seats. Despite some criticism from the Perth press on the way the Victorian team was selected, two from each team rather than the best players available, 
the VFL had their first ever win in Perth over a Western Australian team. 15 goals 19 to 13 goals 8 in the first game, but then lost the second match by three points in a thriller. Earlier, I spoke about the increasingly difficult economic situation in 1929, even before the Great Depression began. A story from the Victorians' return trip to Adelaide is a good example, and a credit to the players involved. While the train was stopped in Cook, an isolated outpost in the middle of the Nullarbor, a stowaway was found. He had improvised a canvas bed roped between the wheels of a carriage. When discovered, the railway officials were going to dump him on the side of the track. Melbourne wingman Ray Usher organised a whip round with all the players tossing coins into a hat and paid his fare to Port Augusta with a pound or two left over to send him on his way. He had not eaten for three days and it is likely he would have died of thirst or accident before arriving in Adelaide where he had been promised work. In Adelaide, the South Australians had a win by two goals, with the Victorians hampered by playing injured players. The result meant that the VFL team had one win and two losses on their epic interstate journey, arriving back in Melbourne on the Tuesday. Despite the interstate games creating an absence of 23 players, normal rounds were scheduled for June. It was felt with each club providing two players each, the burden was evenly shared, and games could proceed. After 12 rounds of the season had been completed, Collingwood was still undefeated, and still with a terrific percentage. Carlton was second, and Richmond had taken third spot, with Melbourne now sitting fourth. Geelong had moved up to fifth, just a half a game behind Melbourne, and Footscray were generating excitement out west. The Bulldogs were just one game behind Melbourne, looking to play in their first ever VFL final series if they could manage things in the last third of the season. St Kilda were also keeping their supporters interested. Even though they were a game and a half behind Melbourne, their percentage was quite good. And Essendon, fourth after the first six games, had dropped to seventh on the same number of wins as the Saints, but handicapping themselves with poor percentage, which would make their finals run just that much harder. Round 13 saw everybody talking about Gordon Coventry again. Against Hawthorne, who had managed three wins in the season, which was progress for the Maybloom's, Gordon had a day out, kicking 16 goals in front of a delirious Victoria Park home crowd, setting a new record for the VFL. At half-time, colourful racing identity John Wren promised £50 to Coventry if he could break South Melbourne's Harold Robinson's 1919 record of 14 goals. Coventry, with the support of his teammates, set the new record and John Wren handed over the £50, close to about $4,500 in modern terms. His teammate Percy Boyer recalled later that the other players thought they would get £1 each, leaving Gordon, or nuts as he was known, with £33. But he kept the lot. For a while, he got a new nickname, Hungry, but it didn't stick, and Nuts would just keep on kicking goals, which is what he, the coach, and the team wanted. And it was in round 16, on the 17th of August, at Fitzroy's Brunswick Street home, that Gordon Nuts Coventry became the first VFL player to kick 100 goals in a season. While he was cheered from all parts of the ground, the crowds did not invade the Oval, nor did the club make much of a fuss about the century effort. Jock McHale's focus was on the team and working towards success in the finals. In the same round, at the supposedly civilised MCG, a spiteful game between Melbourne and Footscray was made worse by the reaction of the crowd. After a number of clashes in the first half, there were several incidents as Footscray players tried to enter their change rooms via a roped-off passage through the Melbourne Cricket Club member stand. A woman attempted to hit a player with her umbrella. 
Another man tried to kick the same player and, as reported in the Herald, a comrade of that player promptly knocked the kicker down. During the game, a beer glass was thrown from the grandstand and struck George Stanley, playing his first game on the leg. Fortunately, he was not hurt. Poor crowd behaviour, even from the Melbourne Cricket Club members, has a long history. By round 17, the finals fight was coming to a head. Collingwood was still undefeated. If they did this for two more rounds, they would achieve something that no other club had managed. South Melbourne went close in 1918, and they might have achieved the record first, except for a drunken weekend away before a Monday game. Check out episode 22 to see what happened to South in their amazing 1918 season. Carlton were safe on second, and Richmond and Melbourne both sat on 16 wins. The Tigers having the better percentage, with St Kilda the only team with a chance, six points behind. Round 17 saw Richmond have an easy win over South to hold on to third spot. But 35,000 people squeezed into the Junction Oval to see if St Kilda could continue their late season run, this time against Melbourne. The Saints had won five games in a row to drag themselves from eighth on the ladder to knocking on the door for finals. And in a superior display on their home ground, they had a three-goal win to get within half a game of fourth spot. And of course, Collingwood had an easy win against North. It would come down to the last round. Melbourne hosting Collingwood at the MCG. If Melbourne won, they would stay in the four. If Collingwood won, the back-to-back premiers would be the first team to go through the home-and-away season undefeated. And then Melbourne would have to hope that St Kilda lost. For the other two finalists, Carlton and Richmond, their last matches of the season delivered a couple of odd games. Carlton were playing North, second versus last. North had only one win all season. Perhaps Carlton decided to take it easy, and at three-quarter time, they were three goals down. But North did not score in the last quarter, and the Blues won by seven points, avoiding an embarrassing loss in their final round. The Tigers travelled to Geelong for a game that could not change their position on the ladder, and perhaps they too were thinking of finals rather than the game at hand. The Cats gave them a 40-point thumping. In a game that did matter, the Saints were visiting Footscray, who had looked like possible finalists before fading away in the latter part of the season. The scores were close at half-time before the Saints took over in the second half for their seventh win in a row. They knew by watching the scoreboard that Collingwood had been untroubled in disposing of Melbourne. The Saints' barnstorming second half of the season had got them into the finals for the first time since 1918. Eleven years ago, Collingwood had become the first team to go through the season undefeated. They were top of the ladder on 18 wins with the right of challenge and red-hot favourites for the flag. And Melbourne were out of the finals, despite having been in the four for the previous eight weeks, achieving a silver or mostest award for missing the finals after having been in the four with a week to go. At the other end of the ladder, Hawthorne supporters could celebrate a season that bought four wins, which equaled the result of the past three seasons put together. So that's progress. North Melbourne would be glad the season was over with only one win, and Fitzroy's hope of a new start with a new committee and new players was yet to bear fruit, with only three wins. The powerhouse of the early years of the VFL were in the doldrums, their fifth season in a row without finals. In September, it was announced that a new reformed group would challenge the incumbent reform committee to restore the Fitzroy Club to its former high prestige. Should work this time, right? On the Wednesday after the end of the home and away season, the umpire and permits committee met to count the votes for the Brownlow medal. One vote awarded each game by the field umpire. There were some anomalies this season, 
No votes were awarded for the rounds where the state team was in action in Adelaide and Perth. And, in a game between Geelong and Collingwood, Albert Collier of Collingwood was bracketed with George Todd of Geelong. But half votes were not allowed, and this vote was declared informal. This did not stop Albert, Lita, Collier from winning the Brownlow medal with six best on ground performances. He had been a leader since Collingwood Primary School days, and Lita became his nickname. He was a 20-year-old centre-half back who played at Ivanhoe before joining his older brother Harry at Collingwood. Kaji Greaves, who had dominated the Brownlow voting over the previous seasons, faded from the umpire's view in 1929. For the first time in the medal's history, he did not get a vote. Carlton took on St Kilda in their first semi-final on the 7th of September. The Blues had finished the season three games clear of the Saints and beaten St Kilda easily in their only meeting in Round 8. Yet, the Saints had finished the season in a mighty rush, winning their last seven games in a row. The expert panel of current and past players assembled by the Herald was evenly split between the two clubs. The Saints would be without half-backman Ed Sanneman, who suffered the fate all footballers fear, aggravating an injury at training on the eve of the finals. He had been out since Round 14, and in front of a large crowd of Saints supporters, he broke down while testing his leg and was ruled out of the team. St Kilda had quite an injury toll to deal with when selecting their team. Along with Sanderman, they were also missing Sentiman Barney Carr and Ruckman Arthur Ludlow, who had played for Victoria early in the season, was out with an illness. Over at Carlton, coach Dan Minogue had the forwards working against the defenders and then circle work before bringing the players in for a meeting. The Blues had virtually a full list to draw on, only missing Harry Soapy Valance, who had been knocked out the week before and not fully recovered. He was running second on the goal-kicking to Gordon Coventry on 64 goals for the season. But the Blues were full of players with finals experience. None of the Saints had ever played in a VFL final. 58,500 people were at the MCG, including some French sailors from the French cruiser Tourville, which was visiting Melbourne. No doubt they would return to France eager to take up the Australian game. After a dry week, the MCG had been watered on Friday evening, which was unfortunate timing because rain fell heavily overnight, creating a soft and muddy ground in parts, with the centre of the ground being very sticky. The Seasiders were the sentimental favourites, given their lack of previous final success, and the great way they had finished the season. They received a very warm welcome as they came onto the ground. All players and officials wore black armbands as a mark of respect for Henry Harrison, who had died on the previous Monday. Carlton's captain, Ray Brew, won the toss and kicked with the wind to the punt road end. An advantage given more rain was expected and getting a lead with the better conditions and a lighter ball would help. There was only one ball used in these games and they could get quite heavy by the end of a match. The first half was a tight game, with both clubs scoring well when they had the wind. Carlton led by a goal at half-time, and when they came out for the third quarter, they knew they had to take advantage of the scoring end. But the inexperienced, undermanned St Kilda players had not read the same script. They played the attacking football and scored three goals in the first 18 minutes, gaining the lead and threatening to take the game away from the Blues. But Carlton were a classy team. They'd been well coached all season and had a strong captain in Brew and a target up front with Horry Clover, even if some of his marks were observed to involve a bit of, quote, illegal pushing out of the defenders, unquote. Not the first forward to get away with that tactic, nor the last. At three-quarter time, the Blues were back in front by a goal. Now the Saints had the wind and the scoring end but the wind turned violent in that last quarter. Newspapers flew around, and others described it as a dust storm, obscuring the players. It seemed to distract the inexperienced Saints more than the Carlton players, 
and after the windstorm had peaked, it just died away, and there was no wind advantage for either team. St Kilda made a valiant effort in the last quarter, but they were hampered by injured players who could not be replaced as there were no substitutes allowed at this time. Carlton won the semi-final. They would play the winner of the Richmond-Collingwood game, while the Saints had lost the semi-final, but still won plenty of admirers for their efforts. Richmond would take on Collingwood in the second semi-final. The Magpies had won 20 games in a row, with the 18 rounds of this season, plus the two finals from last year. They had regularly doubled the opposition score and not been troubled by the Tigers in their two games this season. Not surprisingly, they were the favourites for everyone in Melbourne, except the suburb of Richmond, and even the most loyal of Tigers supporters must have been worried. The Collingwood selectors had an easy evening, choosing a team that had 15 players that had won the grand final in 1928 against Richmond, of which 14 had also played in the Premiership game the year before, also against the Tigers. At Punt Road, the selectors spent a long evening considering their options and looking for the best matchups against the likes of Sid and Gordon Coventry, Brownlow medalist Albert Collier, and others. Unlike Collingwood, only 10 of this team had played in the last grand final, and while most of the football world had already written the result down, the Tigers were not going to be there just to make up numbers. 51,000 were at the game, 7,000 less than the week before. Perhaps some did not want to see a foregone conclusion. Those who had made the effort to get to the ground saw something they would long remember. As reported by Old Boy in the Argus, quote, From the very first bounce, Richmond was the faster, the more convincing, the more systematic, the more purposeful, the better in the air, the cleverer on the ground. In fact, in everything that goes to make up a football team, the Tigers were the masters. The further the game went, the more the superiority of the Richmond impressed. End quote. Seldom has a game confounded expectations as the second semi-final. How was this upset achieved? A combination of tactics and system with a dash of force. Every Richmond player was to stand in front of his opponent and match him for speed and movement. The match-up of players onto the Collingwood Stars was planned and the Richmond coach, Checker Hughes, told his team, Give them all you've got and they will crack. And they gave it to Collingwood in every sense of the word. Within minutes of the start, Sid Coventry and George Clayton were flattened. Collingwood supporters were outraged and Jack Worrell described the blows on both players as quote, displaying a reprehensible spirit that marred the play all day. Unquote. At halftime, Hughes told his players it was the first time in three years he had been able to smile at halftime in a game against Collingwood. But that Collingwood would come at them like lions in the next quarter. But the game didn't change. The game ended with Richmond, 62 points in front. The Herald said that it was the most extraordinary upset in the history of football. 18 spanners were thrown into the works and the machine was smashed to smithereens. The run of 20 wins in a row was over for the Magpies, a record not broken until 1952 by Geelong. Richmond would take on Carlton in the preliminary final and Collingwood, using their right of challenge, awaited the winner in the grand final. There would be a price to pay for Richmond's strenuous victory. Richmond's defender, Basil McCormick, was suspended for eight weeks for striking George Clayton, meaning he would be unavailable for the remainder of the finals. The preliminary final was set for Saturday the 21st of September. Richmond had beaten Carlton twice during the season, even though the Blues finished the season two and a half games ahead on the ladder. At selection, the suspension of McCormick meant that Murray Sheehan moved to the wing and Don Harris, who had played eight games from round seven to 14, was back in the team 
After good performances in the Richmond second 18, Carlton had lost Alex Duncan to ankle injury and replaced him with Charlie McSwain. And first-year player Jim Crow was the unlucky man making way for Soapy Valance's return. Kikoro of the Herald tipped the Tigers and the Friday night panel of experts in the same paper generally favoured Richmond, although there was a solid cohort for the Blues. 60,750 were at the MCG, the biggest crowd of the three finals so far. The weather was initially fine, but soon clouds rolled in and the storm opened up. A crowd in the outer that seemed packed to capacity somehow found room in the stands. Not by paying the extra fee of one shilling nine pence, but simply by pushing their way in to an already overcrowded space. Those who could not get into the stands were left soaking, and many left the ground at half-time, looking for a radio broadcast in a dry home or pub. The crush in the outer in the first half had reduced the chances of a brawl, as there was no room to swing a punch. In the second semi-final, Richmond had been fast and accurate with their play, but also somewhat vigorous with their opponents. Old Boy in the Argus said the game provided an extraordinary mingling of good, bad and indifferent in what became a spiteful, unpleasant match. He also wrote that the Carlton players had adopted the old saying, Thrice armed is he who has his quarrel just, but six times is he who gets his blow in first. I don't think we'll see that line used in any modern TV commentary. But Carlton did go in with the blows. From the start, elbows rattled on unprotected ribs. Fists flew. Kicking was rife. And it became what old players called Rafferty's Rules. Umpire Bob Scott allowed the action to continue without undue interference. An uppercut to the jaw of a Richmond player in the first quarter spurred the players on. And in the third quarter, after a goal was scored and the ball was returned to the centre, shouts of, look at that, burst out from the crowd. A hundred yards away from the ball, two players, one from each team, were staggering and falling to the ground. Trainers from both clubs were attending their players when Richmond's Don Harris tore himself free and rushed back towards Tommy Downs before he could be restrained by the trainers and other players. It was a game that exceeded all normal constraints. And amongst all the brutality, there was actually a close game being played to see who would take on Collingwood. The lead changed multiple times, where the biggest gap between the two teams barely exceeded two goals, with displays of magnificent ball use, passing and running, and accurate kicking a goal. 19 minutes into the last quarter, Carlton had a 13-point lead. Richmond Barrackers were leaving the ground, and Blues supporters were beginning to plan their grand final preparations. Jack Baggett went to the centre to stop Carlton's Colin Martin, who had been dominating the play in the final quarter. All of a sudden, against the flow of play, Harry Wiedner and Murray Hunter goaled for Richmond, and they were only one point down. People rushed back from the exits. Carlton's grand final plans were on hold. Richmond's first-year player, Tommy Dunn, showing calmness beyond his years, passed the ball to Jack Skinny Titus. As he would so many times in his career, it was mark and goal. Three goals by three different players in three electrifying minutes, and the Tigers were five points up. Another behind by Harry Wiedner, and some frantic defending saw Richmond win the game by six points. It had been so close, but sadly the focus for many on both sides of the fence had been on the fight and not the game. Only two players were cited by the umpires after the game. Tommy Downs of Carlton was reported for striking Richmond's Don Harris in the first quarter and also elbowing Harris in the third quarter. Harris was also reported by the goal umpire for striking Tommy Downs and unseemly conduct a charge that might have applied to many more players on both teams. There were calls from a number in the press for the league to investigate further, given the violent display. But there would be no further action by the league. 
Tommy Downs, however, would add to his unenviable record in games against Richmond. Tommy was the cousin of Lyle Downs, the Carlton player who sadly collapsed and died of a heart attack after training one night in 1921. Tommy was also a frequent offender against Richmond. After the 1928 semi-final, he was suspended for 12 games for striking Richmond's Jack Fincher. The evidence at the tribunal for this game was that Downs had been repeatedly struck by Richmond players and his captain, Ray Brew, said that he was not in full possession of his faculties. Downs admitted to striking Don Harris, but said it was an accident. He was aiming for the ball. He was suspended for 19 games, missing all of the 1930 season. Looking ahead to 1931, in his next game against the Tigers, he would be reported for kicking and be suspended for the remainder of 1931 and all of 1932. We will look at that incident in more detail in a couple of episodes, but three games against the Tigers netted Tommy Downs 60 weeks suspension, which might be a record for one player versus one club in so few games. Harris was found not guilty of hitting Downs and guilty of unseemly conduct, but only given a severe reprimand, leaving him free to play in the grand final. Sid Coventry was in his third year as Collingwood captain and looking to be the first captain to lead his team to three VFL premierships in a row. In an interview earlier in the season with the Argus, Sid shared some of his thoughts on the game and how to get the best out of yourself. This is no game for weaklings. If you are to do your best on a Saturday, you must remember there are six other days in the week in which you can prepare. Don't think if you're out late on a Wednesday, you can make up for it by sleeping 12 hours on a Thursday night. It is the regular life that makes an athlete keep their form. Commentary also shared some of his thoughts on the game, such as reducing the number of players from 18 to 16 to reduce crowding. He was also supportive of the umpires and said that the players see things differently to the barrackers. In the three grand finals between Collingwood and Richmond, the Tigers had three different captains. In 1927, Alan Geddes led the team. In 28, it was Donald Don. And in 1929, it would be Cyril Dooley Lilburn. Originally from Birchip, he came to Melbourne as a 15-year-old and attended Wesley College, immediately slotting into their football team. An all-round sportsman, he also excelled at rowing, cricket and tennis. In tennis, he competed three times for the Victorian Schoolboy Championships. His early senior football was at Brighton in the VFA for three seasons before joining the Tigers. He played three seasons for Richmond, being appointed captain in 1929. He would return to Brighton in 1930, like many VFL players, receiving an offer too good to refuse, even if it meant leaving the club without a clearance. In his later years, he continued to display his sporting expertise as an Australian Lawn Bowls Falls champion and also as a state selector for Queensland. Jock McHale was, of course, coaching Collingwood in his 18th of 38 seasons, as well as taking his team to their fifth successive grand final with a chance to achieve the first premiership hat-trick since Carlton's 1906-07-08 victories. Jock had also taken on coaching old Zavarians in 1928 and 29. Obviously, it had to fit around his Collingwood duties, which meant that he was at old Zavarians on Wednesday nights, along with two nights and Saturdays at Collingwood, as well as Sunday mornings after attending church at St Ambrose's in Brunswick, at the same time holding down a full-time job at the Carlton Brewery. It would be decades before coaching became a full-time job. He took the unpaid additional role at Old Zavarians as a favour for colourful racing identity John Wren, who had a son playing for the team. They made the finals in 1928, but during the 1929 season, the extra workload became too much and Jock handed the reins for Old Zavs over to Bert Laxton. Richmond's coach, Checker Hughes, was in his third year at the Tigers and had his team in their third successive grand final, each time against the Magpies, 
At this stage of his coaching career, Hughes had a record that was both impressive and unwelcome at the same time. As a coach, he had already been in six grand finals, but runners-up on six different occasions. Three times with Olveston in Tasmania, once with the Richmond second 18, and twice with the senior team. Surely 1929 would bring a different result. Umpire Bob Scott had officiated in all the finals in 1929, including that spiteful preliminary final, and this would be his first grand final. He had started as a VFL umpire in 1921, but struggled to get a regular spot in league games, instead spending many hours travelling on trains, officiating at various country games. Things changed in July 1929, after he took charge of a Collingwood-Richmond game at Punt Road, and his name was front and centre from then on. He would umpire seven grand finals in a row between 1929 and 1935. So this won't be the last time we hear of Bob Scott. He was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 1996. In the week of the grand final, Jock McHale gave his players an easy time. Sid Coventry recalled that Jock would not let us handle a ball. McHale also had a message in one of his rare comments. We will be holding a meeting with our players on Thursday night, and my instructions will be for our men to play the ball at all times. Collingwood wants to win the Premiership by fair means only. But while the players had an easy time on the training track, the selectors had a very difficult job to name a team to take on Richmond after the shock loss in that semi-final. Some hard decisions were made. George Gibbs had played every game of the season, but he was dropped for not defending Sid Coventry when he was hit in the semi-final. He was replaced by Charlie Ahern, playing just his third game. Also missing out were John Harris and Norm McLeod, both having played all year as well. Harris was understandably upset at being dropped, and would transfer to Hawthorne the following year. McLeod would stick with the Pies. Coming into the team were Percy Bayer and Leo Murphy. There were also a number of positional changes as McHale and the selection committee looked for better matchups on the Tigers. They had a heavier, stronger team and some specific plans in place as they reached for this unprecedented success for their club. Richmond would take an unchanged team into the grand final. They too had a lighter week on the track, with a focus on pace, running, passing and marking. They were buoyed by the premiership success of their Richmond Reserves team, or the second 18, in their grand final win against Geelong on show day. The past and present players and officials surveyed by the Herald for their experts panel were evenly split between the two clubs even though the Magpies had only lost one game in the entire season. On Saturday the 27th of September, the lines to get into the ground stretched over 300 yards as 63,000 people made their way into the MCG for the grand final. The biggest crowd of the finals and just under the record set in the 1925 Geelong Collingwood grand final. An unusual and disturbing aspect of this game was revealed after the match. 11 anonymous letters were sent to Collingwood players. Death threats, unless the players allowed Richmond to win. Club officials intercepted the letters and kept them secret. The players were not disturbed, but the sender was never identified. A difficult decision for the club at a very tense time. The tone of the game was set by Collingwood from the very first quarter. After some scrambling play in the opening moments, Collingwood got their system going. But the machine was operating in a different manner today. Gordon Coventry was making his usual fast attacking leads, closely guarded by multiple Richmond players. But the Magpies were passing the ball to young Horry Edmonds, playing just his ninth game. In the ruck, Charlie O'Hearn was doing all he could do to protect Sid Coventry giving Sid the opportunity to display his skills, unlike in the semi-final. By the end of the quarter, Edmonds had three goals and Collingwood had a 27-point lead. 
Both teams added a goal in the second quarter, but the Magpies, having had the week off, were beginning to look faster and fresher than the Tigers, who had played two big finals to make this game. The second half was more of the same, Ahern putting his body on the line for his captain Sid Coventry, while Gordon Coventry, in his sixth grand final, also the first man to score over 100 goals in the VFL, was acting as a decoy, while first season player Edmonds picked up five goals and Collingwood supporters were enjoying every minute of the fitting triumph to their most dominating season. The Collingwood rooms were the usual celebrations. George Connor, the club secretary, could finally take off his jacket to show the placard on his back. Hat-trick, 1927, 1928, 1929. He said he'd put it on at home because he knew that they would win. McHale said that he had never been prouder and that the present team was equal. He would not say better, but equal to any Collingwood team. He did say that Sid Coventry was the greatest captain Collingwood had ever produced. Sid Coventry declared that it was a great win for Jock, and Coventry also gave special recognition to Charlie Ahern, saying he had played one of the most selfless roles in a great day for the club. When he was asked which of the three premiership teams was the best, Sid Coventry declared that it was too difficult to compare sides, but the younger players had improved all the time. And in this grand achievement, it was two first-year players that had helped the club to a mighty result. Edmonds, from the Diamond Valley like Sid and Gordon, with his five goals, and Ahern, who had played the game of his life with a fractured bone in his arm. Sadly, it would be Charlie Ahern's last game. He would die in 1931 from bowel cancer. He only had a very short career, but his teammates would never forget his contribution. The next week, Collingwood left on a well-deserved trip to Tasmania, and Richmond would have to lick their wounds until the 1930 season. But the business of managing football continued. The first issue to raise its head in early October was the shock headline in the Argus, Project by League, Killing the Association. Old Boy declared that there were well-advanced plans to expand the league to 16 clubs by admitting four amalgamated teams from the VFA. The amalgamated entities would be Preston with Northcote, Coburg with Brunswick, Williamstown and Yarraville, and the fourth would be a combine of Brighton and Paran. The amalgamated entities would be Preston with Northcote, Coburg with Brunswick, Williamstown and Yarraville, and the fourth would be a combine of Brighton and Paran. Port Melbourne would be admitted by merging with South Melbourne. Possibly building a work done in 1928's failed discussions on VFA affiliation with the VFL. However, by that afternoon there were denials from the VFL's new secretary, like McBrien, and several VFA and VFL clubs were unanimous in disowning the story. No one knew anything about such a proposal. Nobody wanted to kill the VFA, and nothing of the sort was being considered. Despite all these denials, a proposal to admit another four or six clubs was debated at the November League meeting, so perhaps there was something going on in the background all the time. In a foreshadowing of the League's eventual expansion in the 1980s, where licence fees paid by the Brisbane Bears and West Coast Eagles were essential to paying down league and club debts, Melbourne delegate Gordon Coulter suggested that the new clubs might be asked to contribute to league funds to meet the liability on Harrison House. When the issue went back to the clubs for further consideration, there was no support. I suspect any possible opportunity for this to happen was derailed by the collapsing economic conditions that would engulf Australia and the league in the coming years. Melbourne Cup Week saw the Australian Football Council meeting in Melbourne with much discussion on rules of the game. First up was a proposal by the VFL to reintroduce the option of a flick pass for handball. This would allow an open palm to be used rather than a clenched fist, as agreed in 1927. 
but Western Australia and Tasmania were opposed, saying that the flick pass created too many disputes about throws, making the umpire's job harder and causing confusion in the game. The holding the ball, holding the man rule, also came up for discussion. Not surprising, as it has been a point of contention for the entire history of the game. Canberra tried to introduce a change to the rule such that a player had to be absolutely stopped before a free kick could be awarded, but this came to nothing. The VFL also tried to reintroduce the old out-of-bounds rule with a throw-in if the ball went over the line, but could not get a sufficient majority for the change. To cap off an unsuccessful council meeting, at least from a VFL perspective, there was no consensus on the substitute rule for an injured player. The VFL was also unhappy with the allocation of costs to continue to support the council. The league, with its liabilities for Harrison House, was running short of funds. However, further discussion on the issue of substitutes finally saw a breakthrough where the option for a 19th man to be brought on the ground to replace a player at any time at the captain's discretion without any option of the player returning to the ground after being replaced, was finally agreed by delegates after the council meeting had officially ended. The proposal would have to be agreed by each league before the start of the 1930 season. It was some progress, but the mechanics of the Australian Football Council were causing the VFL some frustration. Before we finish this episode and the season, it is worth noting the extraordinary achievements of the Collingwood Football Club in 1929. The first team to be minor premiers three times in a row. First team to win every game in a home and away season. Essendon did have an undefeated season in 1893 in the VFA, but that included two draws, which were more common in an era where behinds did not count in the score. The first team to win 20 games in a row, 18 in 1929 and the last two of 1928. The first VFL team to have a century goal kicker and Gordon Coventry's 118 goals in the season beat David McNamara's 107 goals for Essendon Association in the VFA in 1910. Sid Coventry was the first man to captain three successive minor premierships and a hat-trick of grand final victories. Brownlow medal winner, Leader Collier. Second 18 best and fairest winner, Bob Ross. Scoring more than 2,000 points in the season, a new VFL record. Eight VFL premierships to now lead the league, overtaking Fitzroy. And playing fewer men in a season than any other team to date in the VFL. At one time, playing the same 18 players for six weeks in a row. We will return next episode for season 1930. As economic conditions deteriorate, football became an important comfort. Will the Saints continue on with their success in 1930? Can Richmond recover from the disappointment of three grand final losses in a row? Or will the Collingwood machine continue to roll on? If you've enjoyed grand final history, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave us feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.